When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Laura Lee from Krungbin, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Welcome to episode 58. I'm your host, Jenny LSQ, and you won't just hear from Krungbin bassist Laura Lee in this episode. I had the pleasure of separately interviewing all three members of the Houston Trio, drummer Donald D.J. Johnson and guitarist and band founder Mark Spear as well. And so, you know, it's a little different this time. Instead of one continuous conversation, you'll hear from each of them intermittently with a handy bongo sound to indicate we're changing speakers. And I began by asking each of them to talk about their earliest creative memories. You'll hear Laura Lee's voice first, and then DJ's voice, followed by Mark. Let's get into it. So I grew up, when I was little, I lived in Sugarland, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston where the Imperial Sugar Factory is, which is why it's called Sugarland. There's a lot of those in Texas, uh, like Pearland is where pears are. <laughs> but I started playing piano, I guess when I was probably like two or three in terms of, you know, not playing like a masterpiece, but, you know, banging on keys. And I played until maybe I was like 11 or something, but I was really good as a little kid. Like, I think by the time I was six at the concerts that I would perform in, you were, they, they put you in order of difficulty and I was one of the last ones and I was always the shortest. So you could kind of see that, like I was little, but <laughs> you know, into it, but, um, but they, it was a, I forgot a Toyo grand. It was a grand piano. It was a white, beautiful, uh, grand piano oh. that I played on and it took the place of what would have been the dining room in our house um, and it was sort of in the middle of the house and I would run to it all the time and I would play for maybe 15 minutes at a time until I got frustrated and then I would run and do something else and I would come back and play piano for 15 minutes <laughs> and when anybody would watch me like my mom I would be like you, you talked, you can't talk, I'm playing, you know? And then I'd be like, now you breathed, you need to stop breathing, I'm playing, you know, sort of like I was, I would get really focused in on it. And that was definitely the first real tangible thing in terms of my creativity. Um, that, and I changed clothes about five times a day as a kid too. So that has remained in my lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So were you, were you taking lessons as well at, at that point and, and playing yes. sort of the, the kinds of sheet music, you know, the kinds of books and, and stuff like that, that they, it's usually classical music, right? And when, when yes. I was a kid taking lessons, that was what you were connecting with wanting to get good at initially was just mm -hmm. learning what you were supposed to, to learn for your, for your lessons. When did it start to feel like it was expanding 
for you to be like, oh, the piano is a whole, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just about lessons, fuck lessons, you know, kind of the spirit of right. that. When did that start to take root? When I quit, probably, um, which I, I was in, I think I was in late elementary school, like early middle school time where I started to be interested in other things, sports, school, whatever. Um and I, I also had a teacher that I didn't like as much. Like when I was real little, I had a teacher that I loved. And so I was really inspired to play all the time. And then when it becomes a chore and it loses that sparkle, then, you know, whatever. It, it also, that teacher realized that I wasn't actually reading. I would just learn what the song sounded like. And then I would play by ear. And... And then I think once the teacher caught on that I wasn't reading, then I would never be able to play a song twice. So she just kept changing the sheet music in front of me because I was meant to be reading the music instead of playing it by ear. And I still play by ear. And I also found that really counterintuitive because it was like, well, if this is working for me, then it's working for me. And I don't have to, not everybody has to read or play by ear or play any particular way and in some ways playing by ear makes sense with music because it's audible (laughs) yeah that's fascinating and it is also just you know I don't know how often you've thought about that later you know in years since or something but it is interesting to think about these moments when the best intentions of that teacher aside like they they weren't hearing you a hundred percent yeah and so and the, and the second the second creative love that I had was drawing which I started heavily in middle school and carried on through early college and I studied under an incredible painter um, named Michael Roque Collins from Houston and he went on to be like the head professor of art at HBU in Houston but but he was always telling me that. So when I would distort like the human body in some way, and he's like, no, but you need to learn how to draw the human body perfectly before you can distort it. Because how can you distort something if you don't know the thing? And I think that thought, I don't know. I kind of feel like there's a collective consciousness that we're like, do you though? Because it's just art. So I don't know what rules are really rules in creativity you know, um, and I definitely struggled with that. <laughs> and then it really came into play when, so I went to architecture school initially because I loved drawing and I'm really good at math, like sort of naturally. So I was like, this is perfect. Art, math, boom, makes sense. <laughs> and yeah, and it's, it, it actually didn't because it turned out that I really like art and I really like math and actually where they intersect sort of took away the purity for me where it was like, you know, I'd build a model and if there was anything that was sort of imperfect about it, they're like, well, if you were building a house, then how, like, if it's imperfect, how's the roof going to fit? And I'm like, yeah, this isn't art. And like, this, this isn't the thing I like anymore. <laughs> and so then I, I left, I left the architecture program and somehow in my later years of college met Mark and started playing bass and, um, a hundred percent more than any other creative interest I've had. Has it been something that just felt relatively easy? Um, not to say that there isn't time that you have to spend being a total nerd by yourself playing for hours to get certain techniques and 
to get your hands to actually work on the instrument. But in terms of like writing on it, I don't feel like it's so hard. For me, it all started at the church for me. I grew up uh, in church. My uncle played drums, um, not at the church that I went to, but occasionally I would visit uh, the church he played at, which was also my grandmother's uh, church, the church that she attended. And uh, I would watch him play. And it was kind of a spark for me uh, just sitting there and, you know, watching the things that he was doing. It's like, man, I, I want to be a drummer. And eventually that evolved to me uh, playing other instruments. And I got away from drums later on. And then Krung Ben kind of brought me back full circle. Did you, as a kid, hearing that and feeling that excitement, did you connect it to music you were also just hearing on the radio or wherever at your parents' house, whatever it might be? What were those things for you that that lit that fire under you on the radio or, or that you sought out? Well, early on, uh, my mom would always, you know, clean the house, put on records, and uh, just listen to a bunch of stuff. So that could range from anywhere between like Earth, Wind & Fire, Heat Wave. Um, my one specific memory I have is when I first got my first kid's drum set, my mom would put me on the drum set and I would play along to Barry White records. Uh, so yeah, my earliest memory was, uh, probably Barry White and Love Unlimited Orchestra. And I really liked, uh, the drumming on those records. Ed Green was the drummer on there and I don't know he had a way of setting things up, you know, like he'd do a drum fill and it wasn't just a fill for the sake of a fill, it would lead. Uh, into another section of the song and yeah and how old so how old were you when you got the drum kit it's probably around three what yeah yeah i was very young wow do you i mean do you can you remember that like in a i mean i mean how much of sort of visual or sense memory of being three-year-old you at a drum kit do you have (laughs) i i remember enough to to know that my mom instantly regretted getting me drums uh, because they're drums. So she would take the um, the cardboard part of the clothes hangers, you know, the, the hangers that you hang pants on from the dry cleaner. She'd take the little cardboard things off, and those were my drumsticks because they were quieter than the wooden sticks that I had. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, some of my earliest memories are just, you know, at the drums um, and listening to music with my mom or riding in the car listening to music with my mom. My parents had a had a little baby grand piano at the house, and it just seemed kind of crazy to me that if you pressed down on it, you'd get some sound. You know, that was really cool to me. Um, my brother uh, still does plays plays keys and has been doing that since I was like two. So I kind of grew up with uh, with that around the house. My mom has been involved in music. My dad played folk guitar in the '60s to pay his way through medical school back when you could actually afford to pay your way through medical school by playing folk guitar uh so so there's that and then seeing his guitar for the first time and i was like oh wow this is so cool because you know he used to play it Uh, my brother moved away to college when i was about 12 uh and left behind some synthesizer you know with a bunch of knobs and stuff on it like underneath the couch in the living room it was there for a while before I discovered it. it was like, oh, what's this thing? You know, and then plug it in. And uh, I had stopped taking piano lessons at this time because I just hated it. But at this point, I'm trying out, trying to make noises with this uh, weird synth. 
and um, starting from that, so kind of learning how to make sounds from scratch, which is a lot of fun because it's not really so much about, okay, here's an A chord, here's a D chord, here's your scale. It's like, who cares? I'm going to make some weird noises, and that was fun, you know? Uh, so that's what got me into it. Um, but at the same time, I think I was also hanging out with my friends in middle school, and we decided, oh, we want to start a band because that's what's the that's what the cool things. Do you, you have a garage band? This is also back before garage band meant anything other than having a really loud, annoying band in a garage. Um, and I wanted to play drums. So I was like, oh man, drums are so cool. Like I was just like thought the drums were like the coolest thing. Um, but I, you know, there's no way I could afford a set of drums. Uh, but one of my friends is like, oh, yeah, my mom will give you a set of drums. Cool, no problem. You know, so he got the drums, and then I went and found a – I went to some pawn shop in Houston and found, like, a really, really cheap bass um, and started to learn how to play that thing. What were you listening to at that age that you might have been kind of trying to emulate, perhaps? Uh, I, loved, I loved Primus when I was, like, 14. I thought that was, like, the coolest shit in the world, you know, bass. It was, it was the 90s, man, you know? alternative uh, bass funk metal music. Um, I love Faith No More. Um, there was a band in Houston that I could not get enough of called Sprawl uh, that was kind of a funk metal kind of thing uh, in Houston. I used to go to shows to you know to see this band. Uh, the first One of the first concerts I ever went to was Parliament Funkadelic in 1992 at, I forget the name of the the auditorium venue whatever at a TSU in Houston but that's I, I went to go see them and it was like I want to be in a band like this like this is the shit I don't know what this is I don't know what you call this but I want to do this 12 year old kid that's what I wanted to do when I, I actually taught myself to read from listening to Beatles revolver so many times that I would sing along and read the lyrics in my cassette tape, like fold out things. And, uh, and that was how I learned how to read uh, when I was like three or four. So Beatles were my ABCs. And, and it's so interesting with the Beatles. They're so infinite, you know, because they were such this like little special thing that happened when it happened. And it's kind of like, you know, how many books are there on the Beatles? But you kind of go through... I fell in love with each Beatle at different points in my life. And I was such a Paul nerd as a little kid. And I feel like I had my love affair with each one of them. And now I'm back to having my Paul love affair, which is really great. But yeah, so I, I, I grew up listening to like Beatles, Monkeys, Herman Hermits when I was really little. And then I remember being in a music class at school and realizing that I didn't listen to the same stuff as anybody else. And I started, I, I started making myself listen to what everybody else was listening to because I wanted to be cool. <laughs> what, what, what would that have been at that time? It was like Bush. It was like <laughs> what, like alternative, what I think of alternative rock yeah. is, was like that, post, you know, yeah, that post Nirvana, basically post Nirvana. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You made yourself like Bush is what you're telling me. You forced yourself I, I mean, to enjoy you know, let's be fair. Glycerine is a great... <laughs> it's a it's a great song. It's a great song. Not everything that came on that station was great. And I I remember like changing the dial from the oldie station to the alternative rock station so that my alarm clock when it went off would wake me up with alternative rock. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh and it was all downhill from there no, like how am kidding. i supposed to pretend to like this if i don't authentically know the songs <laughs> yeah totally and then i had a real i had a real love affair with 90s r&b for a period of time your tlc your en vogue your oh that yeah hundred percent yeah, 100%, yeah. yeah. And then got into like, you know, sort of Pink Floyd classic psychedelia. And then I found Radiohead. I found Radiohead late. I found OK Computer right before they released um, Kid A with, with Idiotech. Yeah. Yeah. So I the first tour I saw was the Kid A tour. And then I saw them every year, like every tour. You saw them on the Kid A tour? I did. That's pretty major. Yeah. I became like a super Radiohead fan. Uh, still to this day, very much appreciate my fandom for that band. I think they're an incredible, incredible band. I was deep in OK Computer. I mean, I, it was it was my high school record. Like I would come home in all of my rebellion and angst and put my the speakers I had. God, do you remember those old those old style? Um, like CD players that you had with like the speakers on the side, it was a big monstrosity. And I would put all the speakers on the floor around me and I would like lay in the middle of it and just be like in okay computer. Just how radio had intended. <laughs> yeah. Later on in my teenage years, I realized that it was probably gonna be pretty hard to actually be in a band and support yourself. So I went to school to learn how to build guitars or actually learn how to repair guitars. And so that skill kind of, I, I did that for a long time. You know, that was like my fallback. I was like, oh, at least I'm in the industry somewhere, you know. So I know how to do that kind of stuff. Um, I worked as a, <laughs> okay, so Promark is a drumstick company that used to be based in Houston. Um, they may or may not still have a factory there, but they did for a long, long time. Um, and I worked at that factory as a drumstick selector for like their endorsees or endorsers. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, so how does one determine what kind of a drumstick is good enough to go out to? That's what I did. Say Neil, Neil Peart or something. I did, I did Neil sticks for like a while, you know, <laughs> what is, tell me about that process. If you remember, I do remember it's, um, this was kind of in the, in my early 20s, early to mid 20s. Uh, it was like one of those jobs that it seemed like I had a little circle of friends, like they all seemed to do it at some point. You know, it was like, oh, well, you know, one of my buddies, Patrick, he has the job this summer, the next summer, it's the diff other buddy, Patrick. And then the Patrick's like, hey, do you want to do this? I'm like, my name's not Patrick, but I'll do it, you know? So you basically what you got is you have a big concrete block um, and you roll the sticks you have like a you take a big you know grab a whole bunch of them and you roll them out and if there's anything that aren't straight like if they're kind of like wobble when they roll well take those out you know and then you look at the grain and make sure the grain of the wood is going the right direction down the stick like okay if they're not going the right direction down the stick take those out you know so now you have a selection of um sticks that are straight and with the correct grain you know and then you would uh like then you would like kind of tap them out so tick 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 and you go find another tick 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 or tick 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 now okay that's a matched pair take one la one long you know last look at it. okay is the logo on there right is there any smudges or any weird machine um, issues 
nope, this is, this is, a, this is a pair. Boom, now do 143 more. And 143 more pairs. <laughs> so yeah, and totally I had zero idea that this was even a thing prior to having this job. They're like, oh, you could totally do it. I'm like, what is it? It's like, ah, I'll, sh I'll show you when you get there. It's fine, it's easy. And I was like, okay. So I did that for a little while um, and that was interesting. You were playing in bands for a minute, though, in Houston, professionally playing in this church band where DJ was also in the band, not playing drums, obviously. And you had had bands that I'm guessing when you started them, you went into them with the hopes that they would end up going where Krungbin has gone, right? See, that's a big question because where Krungbin has gone, I didn't know that's what happened when your band right, right. You know, gets popular. You have this idea of what you think it is, but you don't know what it actually is. And I can only say that because we've gone there, right? I guess. But even at this point, it's like, oh, I know what it is, you know. But if I was at like, if I got to like Coldplay level or whoever, like next year, I'd be like, see, I had no idea that I'd be here, <laughs> you know. So I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's like right. for the Rolling Stones. Like, what does that feel like for at, at their realm? I don't know what that is. Yeah, I guess I just mean more. I'm I'm curious whether Krungbin felt, or I'm curious whether Krungbin felt different. Or Krungbin by the felt time... different because I wanted to make a, I wanted to have a band where I didn't have to have a whole bunch of pedals, you know, um, where I didn't have to like try to sound like a bunch of different guitar players because I used I used to have to do that. Like if I was gigging or doing a, someone hired me to, for to be in their group, you know, this isn't like. There's like a difference between being like an indie band and being a hired person in, say, like an R&B band or a hip-hop group. It's like they're hiring me to play the music or they're hiring me to play in um, kind of almost like playing covers. Like playing at church, you're like, okay, you're expected to be able to play all these different styles of music and make your instruments sound like all these different tones that were recorded across the history of gospel music. You know what I mean? So it's like... I had the big board with all this stuff so that I can make it sound like Prince or make it sound like Spanky Alford or make it sound like Ernie Isley or make it sound like, you know, whatever, right? So in in Krungman, I didn't want to do that. I, I just wanted to, I basically just wanted to plug into the amp and play simple music, simple, pretty music that didn't need a lot of layers and a lot of stuff. Uh, and in that sense, it was very different than earlier bands that I'd been in because it was like, at that point, I was like, man, you know what? I've tried, I'm not going to make it, I'm going to continue repairing guitars and doing side gigs and playing this church gig, and, and for this thing, I'm just going to just do whatever the fuck we want to do, and not, you know, like, here's the limitations, here's what I think it would be cool if we did, and that was it. And so when you met Mark, I know you were both playing in... Was it an actual church band, or it was connected to a church that you both worked professionally on their band, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a we were in the church band, um, meaning that we showed up every week. We were the set of musicians that were there to play uh, music during the service. Um, right. So it's kind of, in a sense, it's kind of like being in a cover band. We played just various gospel songs from week to week, and. If you know anything about gospel music, the the genre itself encompasses so many other genres inside it. So, um, you know, you'd be playing something that was Latin influence one week, and then there's traditional gospel influence. There's jazz, there's hip hop, R&B, uh, classical, 
you know, it's all mixed in there together. So it was a, a great opportunity for both Mark and I to, to really hone in on our crafts and, you know, study different styles of music and listen to different things. But I think the thing that, uh, that kind of brought us together was, you know, the more you hang out with somebody, you just develop a chemistry and um, you find what things, you know, make you the same or similar. And that's how I ended up, you know, being in a sense recruited because we were hanging out every week um, just as friends, the three of us, and they were making music. And originally Mark wanted to play drums. Eventually you get to a point to where like, okay, we need someone to play guitar. Who's going to play guitar? And obviously no one's going to play guitar like Mark. So <laughs> it's a lot easier to find someone to play drums. And it just so happened that I had experience playing drums, you know, when I was younger. And I was like, okay, cool. Did you play in other bands just around town before you met Mark and, and started playing in Krungbin? No. 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 First band uh got lucky yeah uh i i mean i played with mark in somebody else's band right before krungbin started um which is do how you think you do you think you would i mean obviously you loved music you loved going to see yes. bands you you played music well you know was it something you you pictured like oh maybe i'll figure out a project at some point i think i was way too insecure and i don't know i i I wasn't ballsy enough. And I remember my oldest friend, Danielle and I, we said to each other when we were like 14 or something, 14 or 15 and probably drinking when we shouldn't have been. And was sort of like, hey, you know, if we turn, I don't know, 30 or something, we like came up with some number. We were like, if we turn this age and life sucks, like life still sucks, then let's promise each other right now that we'll do the thing that we actually want to do. And it's like, okay, well, what is that thing? And, and for her, it was becoming an animator. And I said, for me, it was becoming a rock star. So I think I always did, you know, but I just, I never saw myself as being the person on stage. And, and even like, you know, in school, when I changed from architecture to art history, I worked in art museums and it was sort of, I was always working in curatorial departments rather than thinking that I could be the artist in the museum. Even though I, I drew for so much of my life, it was like I was too scared to actually be the one in the, in the seat of the artist. And now I look back on my life and it's like, God, I am such an artist. And, you know, I've always lived that, like, I have to be true to myself. I'm always figuring out what that truth is. And it's the plight of every, you know, creative that you feel like you have to seek whatever truth or new thing or treasure or whatever the thing it is. And yeah, Mark really helped me gain that confidence because he is insane to watch and has been insane to watch forever. I saw him play at church for the first time when I saw him and it was amazing. You know, I was so moved by him in an already moving environment because the church that they were playing in is incredibly inspiring. If that was the church I grew up going to, I think I would have had a different experience with, you know, religion. But yeah, Mark was always just such a 
he has that real thing that like you meet him off stage and then you see him on stage and you're like, this is what you were meant to do a hundred percent. You were meant to play guitar period. And so I think when he was sort of watching me play and guiding me to play certain things or encouraging me to listen a little bit more deeply to notes that when he really liked what I did, it felt like the approval that I needed. And it gave me the confidence to feel like, well, if this dude thinks (laughs) that I've got something, then I must have something. And I don't, you know, I don't think I knew what writing a song was. It's like, you meet people all the time. They're like, I can't draw. And it's like, well, you can draw. You just, you know, you're choosing not to draw, but anybody can literally pick up a pencil and draw something and have a point of view and have a style of drawing because that's just what it is. So I started to write songs without realizing that that's what I was doing. And until Mark kind of put them in the context of the song, you know, so I would play bass to drum loops and I, for hours, and then he would cut it up and he would play guitar over it. And all of a sudden it was a song. And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, if that's, if that's what I'm supposed to do, great. <laughs> Mark, he, uh, you know, he's a real gem uh, in terms of, I mean, he's a genius, you know, DJ is, they're both amazing, but they're both every, each of us has different skills. And Mark is definitely the like X factor genius brain musical thing. Like he, he's always seeking out a sound that he's never heard. And he's always trying to find a twist in everything that we do what makes this song special, what makes this chord special, what makes this change special, you know, everything. He's on a hunt to find the treasure. For the longest time, it was really just LL would play bass to a uh, to a drum loop and then send it to me and I would cut it up and then basically make a, an arrangement that I thought, oh, this is actually, this sounds cool. And then I'll play, I'll just improvise on top of that. Uh, and then go back and be like, all right, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Oh, this is good. Take this. Put it right there. Save that for later. <laughs> then you have your little golden pile of, like, nuggets that you never would have been able to write. I can't write worth shit. I can play, and I can improvise, and sometimes I get really, really lucky. So I try and find the spots where I got really lucky, and then I put it into a put it back into the arrangement and move them into spots where like, oh, this really, really works. Oh, this sounds great. Here we go. Now we're talking. And then then things start to, then the song starts to tell you what it wants. The song's like, okay, uh, I want to do this here and this here. I, I really like to let chance happen um, and luck. But, you know, talking about chance and taking advantage of chance, it feels like uh, meeting Laura Lee is one of these moments of kind of taking advantage of chance. But what was it that you saw that made you f- encourage her to to play the bass and to kind of come into the fold? And, and what were you starting to picture then that that, that the project could be? I don't know. Like uh, I just really liked her uh, ideas of what music is at the time. You know, she's developed like you know leaps and bounds and light years since then but at the time it's like are you familiar with the idea of like a beginner's mind where it's like you can kind of get away with doing anything because you don't know the rules you don't know you're breaking the rules but if you're just starting to play an instrument you'll try stuff 
you know, and it might sound really, really cool. You're like, oh, I really like how that sounds. Um, and you don't really know why it sounds good. You just know it does. And that is the purest form of making the coolest music to me. Like, um, but she was coming into it with like a fresh perspective and like, like not knowing what the rules were and weren't. Uh, and I was like, oh, cool. The first album, Universe Smells Upon You, was just what it was, you know, and and he's like, you'll never get back to that, you know, naive kind of place. But there was so much write up that we were a Thai funk band for that record. So we wanted to make sure that we sounded like something other than Thai funk, even though we didn't think it sounded like Thai funk. And then Contoldo Mundo got written up as this Middle Eastern sounding record so then it was like okay well <laughs> now we need to make sure it's not too middle eastern and so we wanted to pull in as many world influences for mordecai as we could we would start playing around with these like combinations of things to see what sounded good and that was the most intentional that we've been in writing and it still feels extremely playful and creative to me but yeah, we were just on a mission to not sound, not be pigeonholed as any one thing. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Krungan fan. There's so much underdogness about our project. And, you know, I mean, we're, I'm so happy for the wigs uh, now. And like, it's been one of the greatest blessings that I didn't know I gave myself. But at the time, it was like, who are these weirdos wearing wigs, playing instrumental music, like pretending they're from outer space or something? And it's like, oh, no, that really, that was great. <laughs> it's awesome because Krungvin has become the, like, umbrella for all of the art projects I ever wanted to have, you know? So it's like, I got to help do the cover for Mordecai, and I draw all the little drawings on a lot of the insides of the album artwork and I get to curate all of the artists that do the posters. And so it sort of feels like it's given me, I don't know, free reign to do all of the creative stuff that I want to do in one thing. I understand where you're coming from, even though you're being um, more humble than you need to be about just like <laughs> what <laughs> the success of this band that, you know, that you're in and a contributor to, um, but I understand because, and it is awesome, but a pleasant surprise that in the past five years, through the modern version of word of mouth and against all odds in an algorithmic universe, somehow Cantoro El Mundo cut through in a way that like a weird, cool album usually doesn't. Yeah, I often tell people we're the band that literally did everything wrong. <laughs> um, and which is why, I, I mean, we've been asked that question before, like, what do you attribute the success or the, you know, the, the gravity to it? I'm like, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, we literally, like one of the members of the band doesn't wear a wig. Uh, we picked a name no one could pronounce. We recorded, you know, with terrible acoustics in a barn, but just did it all wrong. We don't look like we belong together. It's just all weird. Uh, but somehow it it worked out. You know, every day I wake up and I'm like, is this is this real? Am I really? When's this all going to end? You know, 
you know, am I being punked? <laughs> but what happened some of the moments in these past few years when it's like just legit been happening for Krungpin that you were most kind of like that you cling to that they're your like most favorite memories from these past few years of whether it's on stage or in the studio or just of finding out about something that was happening that that hit you the hardest for kind of a victory oh i mean i could think of just a few a few of the most recent ones um when we got the call that uh jay electronica had sampled uh one of our songs for his debut what would be his debut album that was pretty incredible and then finding out that jay-z was also featured on it uh, and you know that Jay-Z and Jay Electronica are checking out Chromebin. Um, that was really sweet. And um the Paul McCartney AMA where he mentioned that you know he was checking out Chromebin and listening to us. Um, you know, a Beatle. Yeah, damn. That was that was that was all right. <laughs> um I mean there's so many there's so many uh moments um I should really write a lot of this stuff down because I'm going to want to reflect on it later when I'm older and maybe, you know, tell my kids, my grandkids, maybe they could think I'm cool. I'm thinking about the over the parallels between some of the stuff you're talking about, about trying to find that spot in between, you know, the beginner's mind idea that you're talking about, like where you, you know enough about music uh, to have an understanding of technique but not so much that you're always worried about like what's a cliche, you know, it's like a f freeing yourself up to, to follow some things, you know, naively or innocently because yeah, the magic in that space in between knowing what you're doing without overthinking it or something. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, like philosophically, I suppose like if everything you're playing from the top of the song to the end of the song is all cliches, that actually might be something new. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. If it's tropes, all tropes, it's all tropes. <laughs> Everything you do is all a trope, um, and hopefully, hopefully, in this band, it's tropes from other places besides America. So I hear, so I might hear something from, say, Pakistan. That's like, like this is a trope. This is in all the Pakistani songs, and but I don't know that. I just know that it's a really, really cool melody and it sounds so awesome and I'm going to try and put it into what we do. Uh, and that might be a, a total cliche in that part of the world, but I, I'm not aware of it. So by putting it and juxtaposing it against this other cliche from some other part of the world, then I'm creating something new, you know, hopefully. Well, yeah, and also the understanding that eventually, like, all of these tiny, every tiny little choice, whether it's these weird, like, irregular and therefore rejected drumsticks that you've kept and used on a recording, you know, all of the little fucked up things that are, you know, that's the punk rock side of, of things of, like, your band, you know, where it's just, like, all the little things that are a little bit fucked up are what make it special and different. Exactly. I love the little fuck-up shits. You know, it gives you limitations. I like limitations a lot. I remember being in bands where it's like, oh, man, no, we have to think outside the box. And I'm like, actually, I really want to explore our box because if we can create our own little universe that's, like, really codified, but our own codes, you know, like, this is we're, we're going to live here. We're going to explore this corner. We're going to explore this corner. We're going to see what happens in the middle. Instead of trying to, like, reinvent the wheel, it's like, dude, how about just make a really really distinctive wheel you know
and what a wheel it is. That was Mark's voice at the end there, bringing us to the conclusion of episode 58 of LSQ, and massive thanks again to Laura Lee and DJ and Mark. And episode 59, out in a few weeks, uh, features Daniel Lopatin, aka 10trix.never, plus Wayne Coyne of Flaming Lips after that, so please do subscribe to LSQ if you weren't already doing so. And when you've got questions and feedback, you can reach me easily on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. Thanks for listening. <laughs>